Good evening. This evening, I'm going to talk about one of the most powerful tools in public health, but one which is often misunderstood, and that is screening. And ask the question, when is screening useful, and when is it not? Now, historically, broadly, medicine can be divided into two types of activity, curative medicine uh, and preventative medicine. And this goes right back uh, in history. Both of these have existed all the way through the history of medicine. Curative medicine has depended on people coming forward to their doctor with symptoms and say, these are the symptoms, and the, the doctor makes a diagnosis and then prescribes treatment. Alongside that, there's been a long tradition of prevention through advice on greater exercise, uh, good diet, moderation, uh, in alcohol, and in fact, many things which would be very recognisable to public health today. And I've illustrated this with the famous medical school uh, in Salerno, uh, which was the place which really brought together for Europe uh, the previous learning of Greek and Roman medicine uh, with uh, Jewish and Islamic medicine uh, and integrated it. But it had these strands of preventative medicine and curative medicine, and these have been all the way through uh, the history of medicine uh, since that time and indeed before that time. Screening is neither of these. It lies between these two. And with screening, what you're trying to do is identify people who are either at very high risk of disease or alternatively, uh, people who've got very early disease but have no symptoms. So it's not trying to give broad advice to the general public, nor is it trying to diagnose based on symptoms. It's trying to pick people up early who do not have symptoms. And the reason for doing this uh, is fairly obvious. Many diseases, and uh, in the case of cancers, for example, virtually all of the diseases have a much better outlook if they are diagnosed earlier. Uh, these would include breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and bowel cancer, the four leading uh, causes of mortality, cancer mortality here in the UK, uh, but many other cancers as well. They also include some genetic diseases, and then there are some things like high cholesterol or having high blood pressure, uh, which are risk factors for later disease, which if you treat them early, they lead to a much better outcome. And I've illustrated this in this particular case by looking at uh, breast cancer. And what you can see is that if you identify uh, the uh, breast cancer very early, uh, the 10-year survival is extremely good. Uh, and even with relatively advanced uh, cancer in its earlier phases, the outlook uh, over time is very good. But if, if cancer is diagnosed late, then uh, there are serious treatments needed, many of which are extremely unpleasant, uh, and the outlook in terms of mortality is significantly worse. So early diagnosis makes a very big difference. And I've done a whole series of talks uh, in the last year on different cancers, identifying why it is that early treatment can make a very big difference. And if we look at just four uh, important cancers, these four I've talked about, these are the five-year survivals by stage at diagnosis. An early stage of diagnosis means the cancer has been picked up very early in its course. It's still definitely the cancer, but it's been picked up very early in its course. And as you go through the stages, two, three, and four, we're talking about later and later disease. And with all of these, if you get stage one disease early on, 
the five-year survival is uh, over 50%. The, great, the majority of cases uh, will survive. Uh, and most people with breast cancer, prostate cancer, or bowel cancer picked up uh, in stage one uh, or two, uh, and uh, in many cases in stage three, will have a good medium and long-term survival. But once we get to stage four disease, uh, the outlook is a lot less good. So that's the reason why identifying cancers and other diseases early uh, is so critical, because if you pick them up very early, then you can intervene and prevent disease. And the same is true if we're talking about things like uh, heart disease or stroke. If you can pick up the fact that someone has significant risk factors early uh, and treat those risk factors, like lowering their cholesterol, you significantly delay uh, the time before they actually get problems and hopefully delay them uh, almost uh, indefinitely within their lifetimes. Now, another thing to say with these uh, diseases, however, is that not all of them, and this is what the rest of the talk is really to I talk about why this is, not all of them are well suited to screening with current levels of science. And if I choose the four cancers I've identified here, all of which benefit from earlier diagnosis. For two of them, breast cancer and bowel cancer, we have a screening program, and that screening program undoubtedly saves lives. And in two of them, prostate cancer and lung cancer, we do not have a screening program uh, for technical reasons I will go on, on to talk about, particularly in the case of prostate cancer. So Early diagnosis really does matter. Picking up risk factors early really does matter. Uh, but not all the diseases where that is true uh, will screening be useful. And in reality, at this point in time, with our current diagnostic methods, for most serious diseases, screening is in fact currently not a good idea. So it's a minority where screening is helpful. To be an exception, to be one of the diseases where screening is useful, uh, it has, first of all, to be a serious disease. Uh, screening for very uh, minor diseases uh, will only cause problems and worry and is very unlikely to benefit uh, anyone. You must be able to diagnose it reliably and safely. And many diagnostic tests are fine if you're talking about someone who's got obvious symptoms, but much less uh, good, and we'll talk about why, uh, much less good uh, if you're trying to screen people who do not have symptoms. So you need to have a very reliable diagnostic test. And some diagnostic tests are also unpleasant, uh, or in some cases even dangerous, and you wouldn't want to use those in general for screening. Thirdly, you must be able to prevent uh, or treat it in early disease very effectively uh, and safely relative to the risk of the disease. If you can't treat it, then why diagnose it early? Because you're not going to be able to intervene uh, and actually improve the outcome. Uh, the next thing is it must be reasonably common. Let's say you had a disease of one in, one in 30 million. Doing a screening test uh, in the UK uh, would clearly not make sense because you'd end up only diagnosing two cases. Uh, in an absolutely ideal situation. So it has to be common enough that the pickup rate is reasonably high. Uh, and there must finally be a sufficiently long time between uh, the, the first signs of the disease which the test can pick up and actually running into problems uh, 
that you can intervene. So if there's a disease where actually between the first point you acquire the disease and the point it you actually becomes a severe disease is only a few days, clearly a screening test is not likely to be useful. So the longer the time between the initial signs you got disease and the time it, you have to uh, have intervened, uh, the more uh, amenable to having a screening test uh, it is. And many diseases fail on one or more than one of those reasons. Let's start off with the diagnostic step. The practical question for a diagnostic test in a screening system, it's also true for diagnosis, but uh, less important actually uh, for diagnosis uh, because of the fact people have got symptoms, uh, is the, the risk of either a false positive or a false negative. And there are false positive and false negative tests uh, for virtually every diagnostic test uh, that could potentially be used in screening. The question is, uh, how many? So you have a group of people, some of whom have got the disease and some of whom have not got the disease. The perfect uh, test picks up all the people who have the disease and flags positive and uh, does not pick up anybody who has not got the disease, so everybody else is picked up by the test as negative. That's the perfect test. In reality, most tests have some rate where they will pick up some people who do not have the disease, but they flag positive, that's a false positive, and some people who actually uh, have the disease, but they flag negative, uh, and that is a false negative test. Uh, and if you have too many false positives or too many false negatives, that can be a serious problem because uh, a false positive means you will give, get uh, treatment which you don't need because you don't have a disease and a false negative test means you will be falsely reassured. So uh, that is the, the concern with the diagnostic test. And there are two bits to this. The first of it is the property of the test itself the sensitivity and the specificity of the test or the screening tool. The sensitivity is the ability to actually pick up positive tests. The percentage of true positives the test picks up. And many tests that people uh, who are listening will be well uh, used to, like ECGs, have a false positive rate. So for example, the ECG uh, electrocardiogram uh, is around 50% sensitive for picking up ischemic heart disease, uh, narrowing of the blood vessels of the heart uh, with chest pain. So if you just do that test, you will, pick, you will miss some cases, quite a significant proportion. The specificity of the test is the percentage of true negatives that the test flags as negative because you want the test to say positive is positive or negative is negative. So for example, MRI scans of the brain are about 80% specific for diagnosing multiple sclerosis. But what that means is 20% of people where the MRI looks as if it's multiple sclerosis, actually it is not. And that is a concern if you're the person who's one of those 20%, your worry is that uh, you might be uh, falsely positively diagnosed. So all tests have a sensitivity and a specificity. Very few of them have virtually 100% for both. 
There are a few which are extraordinarily reliable, provided you use them properly and provided you wait the, the appropriate amount of time. Uh, pregnancy tests, for example, are extraordinarily reliable now, uh, and provided someone has waited long enough, a positive will uh, mean they are pregnant, and a negative will mean they are not pregnant. It's a very important uh, question, clearly, uh, for a woman uh, who uh, thinks she might potentially be pregnant. And the same is true for modern HIV tests. A positive HIV test uh, done in a lab is likely to be extremely reliable. If it's positive, it will be uh, HIV, although that's almost always repeated, just to be sure. And a negative test, again, rules it out, provided it's been done at the right time. So these are ones where the sensitivity and the specificity is incredibly close to 100% used properly. But for most tests, it's not quite that good. And there is generally, for most tests, a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. If you make the test more sensitive, so you pick up more cases, you also make it less specific, so you also pick up more false positives. And therefore, when you're optimizing a test for screening, you need to know which is more important. Is it not missing a true case, maybe because it's too early in disease, or is it diagnosing a false positive? And depending which disease it is, one or other of those may be important. It depends on the clinical situation. There are some diseases where all you just want to be is just reassured it's not there. There are some others where you really do not want to uh, miss a, a single case. And an example of this uh, is a very standard test for screening for diabetes. So there's a test which many people who are listening to this would have had, something called HbA1c, standard screening tool for di diabetes. If you set the cutoff at 63%, so 6.3%, the sensitivity of this test is about 80%, and the specificity is 82%, or both around 80%. And therefore, you will miss 20% of diabetes cases and overdiagnose roughly 20%. If you set the cutoff a bit higher, the sensitivity goes down and the specificity goes up. And therefore, you'll miss 37% of people, but overdiagnose. 6%. So you can adjust the test, but usually if you increase the sensitivity, you will decrease the specificity. This is a property of the test. But the other thing which affects this, and this is rather less intuitive, uh, is the importance of the prior probability, the likelihood that the person that you're screening uh, or diagnosing has got the disease. And this is based on the mathematical uh, concepts uh, of this gentleman, the Reverend Thomas Bayes, uh, a, a, a clergyman uh, from uh, Tunbridge Wells. Um, and the Bayes uh, mathematics, the Bayesian theory, is essentially the mathematical proof that if you ask a silly question, you will get a silly answer. If I do a test for ischemic heart disease for narrowing of the blood vessels due to clogging of the arteries in large numbers of 20-year-old runners, I, if I get a positive, it'll almost certainly be a false positive. I've asked a stupid question and therefore have a reasonable chance I may get a stupid answer. So it's very important when thinking about uh, tests for screening, what is the probability that someone who's being screened actually has the disease? 
and I'm going to do one slide of maths, and I promise it is only one slide, but it is very important for understanding why so many diseases uh, screening is not appropriate. I'm going to take uh, a disease, name what disease you wish, and have a test that's got a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 90%. That means it picks up 90% of the cases uh, as true positives and picks up 90% uh, of the negatives as true negatives. It's a pretty good test. By, by, by medical standards, that's not, a, that's not a bad test. The key thing you've got to think about, though, is not just the sensitivity and specificity, which for this test are pretty good, but what is what's called the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value. The, ne the positive predictive value is the probability this individual person, if they have a positive test, is it a true positive? And the negative predictive value is this individual person, if they have a negative test, is it a real negative? And what I've got here is two uh, probability trees. And as I say, this is the single slide with maths. There's nothing else after this. Uh, but uh, what I've got on the left, this is exa using exactly the same test, is 1,000 people on the far left. And uh, the prevalence, the, pro the, the number of people in the community who've got this disease, in this case, is 1%. So true positives are 10 people out of this 1,000, and the true negatives are 990 people. That's the true number. That's not the test question. That's genuinely how many people have got the disease. So you've got a test that is 90% effective. So of those 10 people, it picks up nine by a not very complicated bit of mathematics. Uh, but therefore, it misses one. So nine true positives and one false negative. But going down the other arm of the tree, 990 people do not have disease in this situation. And the test has got a 90% specificity. So you multiply 0.9 by 990 and you get 891, where the disease has truly picked up that they are truly negative. That's correct. And a 10% uh, uh, the other way, which means of those 990, 99 people are flagged by this test as positive. And therefore, what you have uh, is 99 false positives, because the pretest probability is very low, but uh, to only nine uh, true positives. Most of the people you've picked up with this actually pretty good test are, in fact, false positives. And this means the positive predictive value uh, is what's called uh, eight, was 8%. That's 9 out of 108 positive tests. And the negative predictive value is very good. Now I take exactly the same disease, exactly the same test. But this time, the prevalence in the general population is uh, 10%. So of that 1,000 people, 100 truly have the disease. 900 do not have the disease. Therefore, 90% sensitive test, 90 of those are true positives, 10 are false negatives. And of the 900 who genuinely don't have the disease, it correctly picks up 810 as true negatives, and 90 of those are picked up as false positives. So in this situation, with exactly the same test, used for exactly the same disease, the ratio of true positives to false positives uh, is 
90 to 90. So a positive predictive value of 50%, negative predictive value is still very good. So this means in this situation, if on the left-hand side, if I did a screening test, only 8% of the people who I screened would actually genuinely have the disease, or the people who were screened as positive. In the right-hand side, uh, for the same test, uh, because it's a higher probability before you go into the test, uh, there's a 50% chance that if I get a positive test, it's a true positive. So I've gone over that in some detail, uh, but the key thing for those who um, have not uh, wanted to go through the maths uh, is to understand the fact that if even with a good test, if you do this in a population where there's a very, very small chance of the disease in the first place, you will throw up a very large number of false positive tests. So both the test property and the uh, probability of disease in the population are very important. It's not just... Uh, the test itself. Now, this is important because many treatments, in fact, probably most treatments, and indeed some diagnostic tests, can do harm. And all of medicine, whether it's curative medicine or uh, here in screening, is about a balance of risk of treatment, risk of intervention, versus risk of no treatment, risk of no intervention. Uh, and in, in many situations, actually doing something does more harm than doing nothing because medicine comes with some risk. At the extreme end, that might be a very major operation where the person will not survive without the operation, but there might be a 50% mortality from the operation, but it's still better to do the operation. For screening, it's right the other end of the risk spectrum. The probability of doing harm is usually low, but the chance that someone actually has disease is also relatively low. It's always about risk of benefit against risk of harm. And if you treat someone with no benefit from treatment because you're treating people with a false positive, they only get the risk of the treatment, they don't get the risk or they don't get the benefit of the treatment because they didn't have the disease in the first place. So picking up false positives is potentially very damaging. And you could use an example, for example, of uh, something which is a well-known and very real risk factor for people having a stroke. This is something called carotid stenosis. This is a narrowing of the blood vessel in the neck. And uh, this is illustrated on the right. These are, this is the blood vessel going up, it forks, and on the right you can see a narrowing. That is potentially a risk for someone to go on to have a stroke. Now, there is an operation you can do to uh, remove that. There's also a way you can do it by putting stents in uh, to uh, open these areas up. These are perfectly reasonable things to do if the risk is high. But these procedures themselves have risks. So what you don't want to do is do a screening test, pick up a bunch of people who will not benefit from treatment, and then do the treatment, do the treatment, the surgery or stenting, because that itself can cause a stroke, which might have been preventable. So what we're always trying to do is only do screening tests where it is much more likely than not that we will do benefit rather than harm from interventions. And that is the key to screening. In addition to the direct harms, uh, you also have the psychological harms that you can turn someone who was previously fit and well, feeling perfectly happy, 
uh, and you do a test which turns out to be a false positive test, and as a minimum, it turns them into a medical case to be followed up, medicalizes people or previously well people, can cause them significant worry, uh, and sometimes can lead to medical overtreatment because once people have identified something, they tend to need to chase it down to the end. And in some cases, particularly infectious diseases, can also cause stigma. So you do not want to embark on a path potentially leading to significant numbers of false positives unless there is some benefit at the end of that process. This reliance on the fact that tests are not perfect of course, therefore means that whether screening is a good idea for a disease is not static. Because tests are improving the whole time. The sensitivity of tests, the specificity, and the safety, in some cases, of the tests are improving the whole time. We're also getting uh, changes to the effectiveness and safety of treatment. If you have a treatment that is extremely benign, it really has very few side effects, having a few false positives who are treated is actually not a particularly big deal if, you're then, if you, by doing that, are going to lead to a very large number of people benefiting from the treatment. If, on the other hand, the treatment has got significant risks, you're going to be much more careful about false positives in a screening system leading to unnecessary treatment. And then finally, the epidemiology of diseases changes. So some diseases are getting more common. So with the same test, it's getting a better predictor predictive value over time, some diseases are getting less common. So you get changes to the test, changes to the effectiveness and safety of treatment, uh, and changes to the epidemiology of the disease. And then there are some philosophical points to whether screening is a good idea. Should we, for example, screen for pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's? That's a genuinely difficult philosophical question. If we had a perfect screening test for Alzheimer's, would someone wish to know that they are likely to go on to get Alzheimer's since we do not currently have treatment for that? And uh, we don't currently have very good tests for it. I put on the right some of the ways in which you can try and uh, pick it up. None of them are perfect. But if we did have a perfect test, you still might say, actually, let's wait to do this until we know that we've got a good treatment. So if you tell someone you could go on to get Alzheimer's, we can say, but we can intervene, and that will go on to reduce your probability. So there are sensitivity and specificity questions, effectiveness and safety of treatment questions, epidemiology questions, uh, and philosophical societal questions, which have to be answered for a screening test. So that's the kind of uh, principal preamble to this. Central to the screening test that we do use is the idea of risk stratification. So because it's very important you don't screen people who've got a very, very low chance of the disease, unless you've got a perfect test, which is quite rare, the key thing is to identify the people who are at greatest risk of disease. And the main way we do this through most screening uh, things at the moment, and we're going to get on to a much better uh, way of doing this over time, uh, is to look at age, above all, gender, uh, and for some diseases, consider ethnicity, but you might also want to consider other issues. If you've got some, uh, for example, uh, a woman in, in her 60s, um, then she is clearly at much higher risk of breast cancer, which you might want to screen for, than a woman in her 30s, and absolutely uh, a man in his 60s, although breast cancer in men very occasionally uh, does occur. So you, um, you, you stratify on relatively 
crude criteria at the moment, largely age uh, and gender related. And when you start thinking about all of these reasons why you want to be very careful of not over-diagnosing a, a, a someone and over-treating them, uh, you realise that there's actually a relatively small number of diseases where screening is a good idea. And on the right here, what I've got is the current national population screening programmes. And I'm going to run through, in particular, uh, the screening programmes for adults. Some of these screening programmes are, are antenatal. This is to pick up major fetal abnormalities, things like Down syndrome, for those parents who wish to. Some of them are immediately postnatal. These are to pick up genetic abnormalities where early treatment would lead to a reduction or completely stopping lifelong ill health. But then there's a group of things where there's a national screening programme in adults in the UK. Um, and these are the ones I want to talk about in greatest detail. But there are also things where we screen high-risk individuals who come from particular groups. This is not the general population, but someone comes from a particular high-risk group. And finally, there are issues like health checks and other GP uh, testing, which is often called screening, but, uh, but uh, often has a slightly different purpose. So there's a number of screening programmes, but the ones I want to concentrate on to illustrate how screening works are the adult uh, diseases uh, in the UK system. Now, in the adult diseases, it's often said that screening prevents disease. Actually, for most of the adult screening programmes, it's to identify disease very early and prevent it progressing further, often by, in the case of cancers, for example, actually just simply cutting them out in surgery. And there are four uh, major uh, national screening programmes in adults. Uh, cervical screening um, uh, in women, uh, younger women. Breast screening in slightly older women. Bowel screening in men and women looking for bowel cancer. Uh, and then aortic aneurysm screening, uh, which is looking for a uh, swelling in the blood vessel, the major blood vessel in the abdomen. Let's start off with cervical screening. It's an extremely effective screening programme. It's the commonest cancer in young women. If people get this, they will get this early in their lives in medical terms. Uh, so women aged 25 to 49 are offered screening every three years, and those 50 to 64 are offered screening every five years. These numbers may change over time, but this is broadly where it is at the moment. And this is, therefore, the screening is particularly concentrated on earlier years. And that is because most people uh, acquire their, their risk for cervical cancer very early in their life. It's uh, a virus, uh, HPV virus, uh, and there'll be a period uh, of time, and then that, that virus can uh, cause cells to become a precancer a number of years later, and if that's not treated, that can go on to cause a cancer later in life. Screening of women for um, cervical cancer uh, began in 1988, um, and it's led to a substantial reduction in cervical cancer uh, by about probably 30 to 40%, according to the Office for National Statistics. We're moving over to a better test, and have done in the last uh, year, uh, which improves the accuracy, and that may in fact lead to an even better outcome uh, in terms of this screening programme. But on the right here, what you see is the rate of cervical cancer 
uh, up to the point of screen, when screening began, where the arrow is, and then you can see that significant decline, and that's because the cancer was, uh, was prevented by picking up precancerous cells early on and then intervening to uh, make sure that those cells were killed in situ, very localized procedure, and that means that cancer never goes on to happen. Unlike most cancers, HPV uh, decreases with age, um, uh, and there's a clear and fairly easy diagnosable precancerous state. So this is a perfect situation uh, for um, uh, screening. And you have these uh, precancerous cell changes, um, and uh, then um, uh, what you do is, uh, in the older methods, uh, slightly, uh, as I say, slightly changing, look at the cells, see how abnormal they are, uh, and if there are abnormal cells, uh, then uh, the woman is invited back uh, for a procedure to try and make sure that does not progress. So what are the advantages of this screening progress program? What it means is that women are picked up early in their uh, disease, um, and very early in their disease, before the cancers have gone on to actually become, before the cells have gone on to become cancer cells, they're precancerous, and then a very minor procedure is done. It may be extremely minor, really lasting a few minutes. Uh, it may be slightly uh, more extensive, uh, but that means that a small procedure early on means they don't go on to get cancer, which would otherwise have led to very extensive treatment, uh, and in some cases, uh, two people, uh, two women dying. So the advantage of going for the, the most sensitive tests by looking at the cells with less advanced disease uh, is you intervene even earlier, and the procedures are even more minor. The disadvantage is some of those will be, uh, would have actually gone back probably to normal over time or would not, or, uh, it's a false positive. So there's a little bit of over-treatment, but the advantage of a little bit of over-treatment is it's a very minor treatment. If you wait too long till you're certain it's a cancer, uh, you will have fewer people have this very minor procedure, but more people will go on to have a true cancer, and that can lead to uh, people having severe disease. Uh, and in some cases dying. So you're trying to intervene early with a little bit of overtreatment, but a very minor procedure to stop much more severe disease uh, and mortality later on. Several cancer is an example where both the test and the epidemiology are changing. HPV uh, has two particular types that are responsible in the UK for somewhere between 50 and 70% uh, of cervical cancer at the moment. But we also have a vaccine, which is widely uh, used uh, in the UK, which is over 95% effective against these if given to girls before they become sexually active. And in the UK, coverage among girls is about 89%. And this is likely to reduce cervical cancer possibly by around 50% or more over time. And newer vaccines cover a wider range of viruses which can cause cancer and therefore will extend the protection. So what we expect is over time, the amount of cervical cancer will go down if we did nothing at all other than vaccinate because it'll become much rarer because we're getting rid of the virus. And therefore it may be possible to do less screening and still have a significant effect in terms of reducing the probability of disease. And then 
the epidemiology is changing, but also the test is changing to make things uh, more effective. And we're moving over to an HPV DNA test, and this will uh, lead to a reduction in overtreatment. So we've got a better test and less disease. So things with cervical cancer are heading very much in the right way. We've got an effective screening program, we've got an effective vaccine, uh, and we're getting better tests. This is uh, a very clear good news story in medicine. Despite the fact that cervical cancer uh, screening is highly effective, uh, there is a good coverage rate uh, in the UK for cervical cancer screening, but uh, it's variable across the country, and it's actually uh, particularly a problem here in London, uh, and the rates have been gradually drifting down over time. So if you compare rates uh, in uh, 2011, so 10 years ago, uh, with rates now, in every part of the country, the rates of screening have gone down. And I would strongly urge any women in the appropriate age to get their screening, because it really will lead to, uh, over time, in multiple people, uh, reductions in their chances of going on to get this cancer. The second major program to consider is breast cancer deaths, breast cancer screening. There are about um, 11,000 breast cancer deaths a year in the UK uh, and uh, around 55,000 cases. The 10-year survival over time has uh, improved really substantially. So if you've gone back to the 70s, breast cancer survival was around 40%. Uh, it's now close to 80%. And the peak time for getting breast cancer uh, is uh, later than for cervical cancer. So breast cancer screening is done by mammography, where people have a low-dose X-ray uh, um, every three years uh, between the ages of 50 and 70. And its big benefit is it catches early cancers. Uh, obviously, the risks are that you will get some degree of over-diagnosis and over-treatment and worry. But because uh, breast cancer is such a common cancer and treated early, it is so easy to treat relative to how, it, how easy it is to treat late uh, on in the disease, picking it up early through screening overall has a significant benefit. And the rate of breast cancer detected in England is around eight per thousand women screened. This is an example where actually the type of test you use has different implications uh, for whether it's useful for screening. So mammography, the type of testing that's used where women have low-dose ordinary x-ray done, uh, although it's, in fact it's a relatively low-tech test, is actually the best screening test uh, we currently have. MRI scanning, which is a much more uh, sophisticated form of testing, uh, is more sensitive, but it, would lead, but it also picks up large numbers more false positive tests if used in a screening program. So it would lead to more unnecessary procedures. Uh, it is better in particular people, people with very dense breasts, younger patients in some situations, uh, but in general, this lower tech test uh, is the most uh, useful for screening, uh, and then it can also be uh, benefited also from ultrasound, uh, where suspicious areas can be identified uh, and help to identify where biopsy is. So it's it, the minimum amount of procedures are done. These are some numbers uh, looking at a mesh analysis of trials of breast screening in those uh, 40 to 70. Um, uh, and this is uh, from a large mesh analysis of very uh, large numbers uh, of people. Uh, relative risk of reducing mortality from screening about 0.8 for UK data and about 0.8 for 
Canadian data, and so relatively consistently a 20% reduction in breast cancer mortality. And remember, breast cancer mortality, breast cancer is a common cancer, so 20% reduction uh, is really quite a significant uh, change. So in practical terms, for every 10,000 women aged 50 years invited to screen for the next 20 years, you would end up preventing 43 deaths from breast cancer, but you would get some degree of overdiagnosis with minor procedures uh, in general performed. But overall, the benefits of breast breast screening for breast cancer are very significant. We're now uh, trying to look at the question, should we extend the age uh, of people having breast screening lower in age and higher in age? And in both cases, what we're trying to do, those who are doing the studies are trying to do, uh, is to find out whether actually uh, we we will lead to a reduction in mortality without overdiagnosis. What you're trying to avoid uh, is overdiagnosis without a significant reduction in mortality. And then there are also studies looking at the question about should we be doing more screening uh, in high-risk women uh, who, for example, have a first-degree relative. That means a sister, uh, for example, or a mother or a daughter uh, who has a cancer at under 40 years or has cancer in both breasts under 50 years. And these people are at higher risk. So should we be screening these people more intensively? Uh, And observational studies would imply that we should, that if someone actually has a very strong family history of young onset breast cancer, then you might want to screen more intensively and earlier than in the general population. So this is an example of stratifying uh, based on risk. Breast cancer screening uh, is quite variable by country, Uh, These are a number of different countries. The UK is in red. Uh, Unlike cervical cancer screening, the rate of screening has stayed relatively constant at about 75% uh, over many years now in the UK. Uh, This is uh, higher than some countries, uh, but uh, certainly lower than some others. For example, Finland has the highest rates, uh, and the Netherlands, uh, and in fact the USA also have very high rates of screening for breast cancer. So there's a certain amount of variability among countries, but it has remained fairly stable in this country. The third cancer, which is one which is an issue for both men and women, uh, is bowel cancer. And for bowel cancer, early diagnosis is the key to a good outcome. Uh, On the left here, you can see the survival rates Uh, over time, five-year survival rates for stage one through four disease. And if you pick this up in stages one or two, and even actually in stage three, the outlook is really very good for most people. Stage four disease, uh, much less so. So picking this up early is absolutely critical. There are a variety of ways you can screen for bowel cancer. One is what's called a bowel scope. This is actually looking up into the bowel Uh, for people who've otherwise got no particular symptoms, uh, generally at age 55 uh, in the UK. Or uh, the other way this has been done over the last several years is something called FOB, fecal occult blood, three uh, tests done every two years from the age of 60 uh, and can be done later in some people, done at home. And these are then posted in uh, to test. 
And there's been a move over to a rather more uh, sensitive test, a rather better test uh, called FIT, uh, and it uh, only requires one, sen- one specimen rather than three. And these are posted out to people, and only if they're positive do you then, then go on to the next stage, which is a colonoscopy, which is where someone looks up uh, their bowel with a telescope to try and see what's going on. So if there's a positive test, that's the screening test. And then if there is a positive, they have the colonoscopy, the second test, uh, which actually determines whether there is a cancer or not. And having this colonoscopy, if they screen positive, allows both detection and treatment of early disease in some cases, certainly detection of early disease, where uh, a relatively minor procedure can be undertaken and someone who would have gone on to get a bowel cancer uh, is back to their normal uh, life. So in uh, picking these things up early is very worthwhile and for both men and women, again, I strongly encourage people who are potentially at risk uh, of cancer to have these screening tests. If you get sent one of these tests, please do do it. And uh, we have in bowel cancer several significant trials, large trials done, uh, and all of them demonstrate uh, that uh, using, even using the rather less uh, good tests we previously used, the FOB test, that there is a significant reduction uh, in the case of a UK trial, uh, for example, a 13% reduction in colorectal cancer deaths. So this is not just theory that this can work. This is uh, being proven to work uh, in trials where people were randomized to a screening or not, uh, and those who had screening had a significantly better outcome. And the same has been done with the bowel scope test, where people had a single test at the age of 55. Again, a very large study, uh, 17 years of follow-up, long period of time. Uh, and over time, uh, what uh, they found was a 27% reduction in the amount of cancer uh, and a 30% reduction uh, in cancer mortality. So again, clear evidence that this form of screening reduces people's chance of dying from bowel cancer over time. It's a long time lag, but over time this makes a significant difference. So those are examples where the trial evidence or the uh, other studies are strongly supportive that a screening program saves people going on to have disease and saves lives. But there are many diseases where that is not the case, even where you might think that it would make sense. And an example of this, and I'm only going to use the one, but there are others, uh, is prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is the commonest cancer in men, uh, and uh, certainly in the UK. Um, And there is a screening test, potentially. There is a blood test called PSA, prostate-specific antigen. And um, the screening uh, test is pretty sensitive and fairly specific. But if you screen people to have this test, what you find is that actually... If you randomize people to have the test or not have the test, there's no increase in improvement in mortality in the people who have the screening test compared to those who do not. So what you get is quite a large number of men have a positive screening test with the blood test, and then they have to go on to have a relatively unpleasant, not massively unpleasant, but relatively unpleasant, you wouldn't want to choose to have it, uh, uh, procedure where they have a biopsy of the prostate 
And only if that is positive will they then need to go on to have further treatment. But these men are otherwise living a blameless life. They wouldn't otherwise have had this biopsy. Uh, and therefore, it's only worth doing if it, there is evidence that it leads to a better outcome. And the randomized trials, large studies, uh, this systematic review looked at uh, over 300,000 uh, men uh, randomized and found the relative risk is one. There is no advantage to having this. Not a disadvantage from the, that point, from the point of view of uh, mortality, but there's no advantage. And if you visualize this, with this prostate screening, uh, this is a very nice way of visualizing it. On the left is 1,000 men without screening. In the dark red arrows, what you have is a small number of men on the top left who, uh, without screening, would die from prostate cancer, and a much larger number of people um, uh, who might uh, die from other causes. And on the right, you have uh, the same uh, situation, the same number of men would have died without, with screening, so it doesn't make any difference to them, but in the green is what you have is the number of men without prostate cancer who have false alarms and unnecessary tissue samples, the biopsies, uh, and in blue you'll have the number of men who would actually have treatment, might be surgery, might be radiotherapy, might be uh, chemotherapy in some cases, uh, uh, for a disease which they do not, in fact, need treating. They would not have come to any harm from it. So here's a situation where if we screen large numbers of men with this blood test, we will make no benefit to them in terms of reducing mortality, but we will lead to a lot more overtreatment. So this is important that this trial has happened, but with existing technology, uh, it is very clear we should not be doing prostate cancer screening using PSA testing. Finally, uh, in the adult group, before I come on to more general principles about where things are going, there are a number of diseases where you will do screening but only in a very high-risk group. So, for example, people who have long-standing diabetes will have regular screening of their eyes to try and check if there are diabetic eye changes because uh, in those people... Uh, you can then intervene and prevent them from going blind because of their diabetes. So that's screening, but only in people who've got diabetes. And there are some screening programs that are done only in people who have a family history of young-onset cancers. A relatively small group of people, but if there's someone who very, very high rates of cancers at a very young age, those people might be screened, but only in those families. So there are some things where screening is appropriate, but only for high-risk individuals. So where are we going to go uh, with screening uh, in adults in the future? Well, there are several um, diseases where it is clear that screening would significantly improve outcome if we had better tests. These include lung cancer, where there's a debate about whether we should be doing CT scanning uh, of people who are lifelong smokers because they're almost all of the people at risk, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, uh, ovarian cancer in women, uh, cancer of the ovary, and esophageal cancer. These are all cancers which are, um, uh, unfortunately, at this point in time, have a poor outlook. And I've talked about uh, all of them in the uh, previous uh, year uh, over time. All of them have a poor outlook compared to breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, and bowel cancer, for example. 
And that is in all of those cases because they are generally picked up late. Were they picked up much earlier, treatment would be much more minor uh, and outlook would be much better. And here what we have on the right um, are the uh, rates of mortality. Top of the list, uh, lung cancer, currently no screening, we need to debate it. Then breast, uh, bowel, two ones where we do have uh, screening, and that's one of the reasons why they have much lower mortality than they used to. And then pancreas, ovary, ovary esophagus, uh, the next ones down. These ones really we do need to think about how to improve it. High mortality, late disease. Scientifically, um, we are getting better at this stratification, identifying people who are at particularly high risk. And genomics and uh, genetic studies, for example, are going to help us with this, but also uh, a number of other tests which allow us to say this man or woman is at much higher than average risk, they need more screening, and this man or woman is at much lower risk, and they can have less screening than average. So something where we only screen on the basis of age and gender uh, may well become uh, a lot more sophisticated. And an example of a gene which I think a lot of people will have heard of, uh, which if you, someone has it, you would want to... Uh, do a much more intensive screening uh, is the BRCA, uh, BRCA1 and 2 genes uh, when there are mutations on those. Another technology which is going to help us a lot uh, is artificial intelligence uh, kind of methodologies used for diagnosis. This might be radiology, uh, X-rays, CTs, MRIs, or it might be histology where we look at cells under the microscope. Uh, a lot is said about AI that is uh, exaggerated, but what uh, the technique is very good at, and I think really will revolutionize, uh, is pattern recognition. So just the routine churning through of breast mam mammograms, cervical screening, uh, smear tests, and so on. So uh, that's another technology which I think is going to significantly improve our ability uh, to do screening. There's a lot of talk about liquid biopsies, where by blood tests we can pick up particularly cancers, at an early stage, often through genetic uh, methods. And so that's all of that is on the diagnostic and uh, side, and those are improving the whole time. And we're also getting safer treatments. And if the treatment gets safer, a screening program that might previously have been too risky because you're treating people with a dangerous treatment and you therefore don't want to pick up false positives may become a much more uh, attractive-looking risk. And finally, we're getting better tests uh, all round over time. The whole uh, time, our ability to uh, improve diagnosis uh, is advancing. Antenatal screening is also routinely offered to women, uh, and that uh, is looking for things like Down syndrome, uh, where you have three uh, trisomy, what's called trisomy three, uh, three of a particular one of the uh, chromosomes, uh, and similar things called Edwards and Patio syndrome. Uh, women are at about, uh, of 20, are at about, have about a 1 in 1,500 chance of a baby uh, with Downs, and about uh, 40, uh, and at, at the age 40, about 1 in 100. So it's still a minority, but it, it increases over time. And the modern tests combine uh, a, uh, an ultrasound test, looking at the neck, uh, and a blood test, usually done at weeks 10 to 14. Now, it's not perfect, and only if, if that's positive, that that implies as a problem, uh, women are then offered the opportunity to go on to have uh, what's called an amniocentesis, where they're taking cells from uh, the, uh, the area around the baby, or uh, sampling of um, the villus, which is uh, part of uh, the way the baby's attached. Um, these are much more 
accurate tests, but they do have a very small but non-trivial risk of miscarriage. So women have to make a choice as to whether they think this is something they would wish to do. But the first screening test means that only a very small proportion of people need to go through to the second test if they wish it. The first test is very safe and does not pose any threat uh, to the pregnancy. And then when babies are born, um, they'll have a heel prick test, uh, generally at, day f- uh, at five days. Uh, and this is trying to test for a number of genetic conditions, which if they're picked up early, can significantly improve the probability that the child can be treated early for things like cystic fibrosis, congenital hypothyroidism. These are rare diseases, but if they're picked up, it means that we can actually prevent them from progressing. Finally, infectious diseases. I'm not going to talk at great length about screening for infectious diseases, uh, and this is different from uh, mass mass, uh, testing, which is done under uh, operational conditions for a number of diseases, uh, slightly different from screening, as is ordinarily understood. The practicalities of this are often quite tricky, actually. Um, It's generally easier to do classical screening for infectious diseases where people get infected and remain infected and infectious for long periods of time. So this is, this is because that gives you time to actually, between the time that you pick them up uh, and the time they either have disease or uh, pass it on to other people. Uh, and examples of this are long-standing diseases, diseases that once people have got them they have for long periods, include tuberculosis, uh, historically syphilis, trachoma, which is a disease, a blinding disease of the eye, uh, or sleeping sickness, which is a a disease uh, that used to be very common in Central Africa, still exists. This on the right is an example of people being screened for trachoma uh, as emigrants into the USA um, earlier in the last century. So if you've got a long-standing, a long chronic disease, one that goes on for a long time, uh, some screening has sometimes been used for infectious diseases. Uh, And infectious diseases also has the concept of what's called active versus passive screening. Active screening is where you go out and you find cases. Passive screening, you wait until they come to you, often with symptoms. And again, uh, you can argue about whether that's screening at all. But in active screening, you go out to try and find them. Uh, And there's a slight increased risk of false positives because you've got a lower pretest probability but it means you'll miss fewer cases. Uh, In the UK, we used to have a very extensive active TB screening program, for example. On the top uh, are are some of the uh, trucks that were used in the active TB screening uh, program in uh, the earlier part of the last century. Uh, And on the bottom, uh, we've actually got our active screening program uh, here in the UK now, uh, much more uh, smaller numbers, largely aiming uh, to pick up cases in people who are homeless at the moment. Uh, but it is very important we do that for their health, uh, and it also obviously reduces the risk they will pass things on. So this is screening for infectious diseases. So screening is a very useful potential tool under a restricted range of circumstances, but for many diseases, uh, it's not the appropriate thing to do. It has to be a serious disease. You have to be able to diagnose it reliably and safely, and ideally cheaply. There's got to be a highly effective treatment or prevention that's safe relative to the risk of the disease. It's got to be reasonably common, or you won't be able to pick up enough cases to make it justifiable, and also you'll get a very large number of false positives. 
and there's got to be a sufficiently long time from the point that you pick them up in the, di the disease uh, to the point you can intervene uh, that actually it still benefits people. But if things fulfill all of those, screening is a very good way to mean that people have less disease and it's either stopped before they have any, any significant disease at all or early enough, they can have much more minor treatment uh, which leads to longer uh, survival uh, and in most cases a full uh, and happy life. So we are constantly improving on this but at this point in time, screening is only appropriate for a relatively restricted range of diseases. Over the next decade, I expect that uh, to change. Thank you very much.